Hello, friends. I am wearing my coronavirus-inspired shut-in garb with my nice little sweatshirt and my grown-out bangs that I have to pin back because they're, they're becoming unruly. So I've been told that my intros are slightly on the long side, so I'm going to do my best to be quick about this one. So in this chat, I speak with Colin Wright. Colin was one of my first uh, guests, actually, on this channel uh, a year ago. We actually are talking about the same topic on biological sex. And the reason why I wanted to speak with Colin again was because a couple weeks ago, Colin ended up getting a little bit of a Twitter pile-on going uh, while surrounding uh, a misconstrual of something that he was saying. If you can imagine that happening on Twitter. So enjoy the interview. Let me know what you think in the comments. And don't forget to subscribe if you appreciate what I'm doing here. We were chatting a second ago about how you've come about on Twitter slash why you're advocating for what you're advocating at the moment slightly. So can you give me a little bit of a background for the past year, I guess? Oh man, the past year, that's a lot's been going on. Well, when you started, we kind of yeah. were chatting about how you started off on Twitter because... I think we, I think we started, basically, I, I had just published my first article in Colette that was the new evolution deniers. Right. So it was basically sort of like a coming out party for me, I guess, in a way of just um, finally speaking my mind. And I was, you know, I, I had self-censored for a long time in academia mm -hmm. all the way through school, beginning of my postdoc, and things were just getting too nuts, people denying the reality of biological sex and things like that, and mm -hmm. gender ideology taking over different things, and trans women playing in women's sports, and just all this stuff, everyone's throwing around the word bigot and transphobe and everything, mm -hmm. and it just seemed like it was absurd, and I thought I had a view I could contribute to this, but I was basically just too afraid to, to say anything because I didn't want to sabotage my career. Because you um, are an evolutionary biologist. Yeah. Correct? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so basically I just couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I, I wrote this big, this long essay, I guess it wasn't too long, in, for Colette, and it sort of went viral. Um, it said a lot of things, I think what a lot of people were currently thinking at the time, at least that's, if you read the comments of when I first tweeted that out, that seems to be the, the impression. Um, a lot of the impression, too, was that, like, because in that article I talk about the, the denial of biological sex and sex differences in general. And there was a lot of people in the comments that were saying, like, oh, this is a person, he's just confusing gender and sex again. Like, no one's really denying the reality of biological sex. And I think this last, year, this last year has really shown that, like, well, that's that's not true. They yeah. indeed are. Yeah. And it's, it's being more and more difficult to deny that anyone is actually saying that biological sex, not just sex differences, but that, like, biological sex itself is a thing. It is, they're now saying that it doesn't exist. And so I've been sort of riding that hobby horse for the last year. Right. Um, not, not for any particular reason other than I think this is, I had a tweet not that long ago that went semi-viral that was saying that I think this is sort of the last, the, I think I called it reality's last stand. Like if, if we can't all agree that something is as clear to our senses as the biological sex, we can't agree that that's real, then we're just... We've, we've, we're hostages to chaos. We just, there's nothing tethering us to reality. And I see this as sort of one of those big things that 
if we lose that tether, like, I don't think we'll ever get it back. Because, <laughs> like, what else can we deny? We, we can deny anything if you can deny the, the reality of biological sex and sex differences in general. Right. So, kind of what I've just been... Uh, I guess my main focus on things like Twitter and things that I've written, um, yeah, things like things like that. That's, that's basically what I've been up to the last year, uh, in a nutshell. Okay, so I think there was one particular tweet that was the um, initial, hey, do you want to chat again, Colin, <laughs> for me, uh-huh. with you. Um, I, I was off of Twitter for a little bit, um, and when I came back on, all I was seeing was you kind of saying, hey, thanks for the support. And I'm like, what? Why do you need support, Colin? Do you, you know what I'm talking about? I do, Which yeah, tweet? yeah. You um, suggested that the sudden rise plus 1,500% in adolescent females um, present, presenting with gender dysphoria may be caused by social contagion, in quotes, um, dynamics. Social contagion dynamics hypothesized in Littleman's paper on rapid onset gender dysphoria. Some purposefully misrepresented it as me comparing trans people to viruses. So let's do a little unpacking of that, of an explanation uh-huh. of like, what did you actually mean? Yeah, so there was so there was an original tweet that I had deleted. I'm kind of regretting deleting it now, but okay. I kind of wanted to take... Then I wanted to take the narrative out of anyone else's hands because by itself, I guess there could have been, if you don't know that social contagion research is an actual field of research that is not like a controversial field, you can maybe, I can see how some people might read my tweet uh, as maybe being offensive to some degree. Because they don't um, understand, giving, right? They don't understand giving, what it means. Yeah, they're just giving me like the least charitable interpretation of what I wrote. So my original tweet was basically, I shared a story, um, an article, I think it might've been in the economist or something. I can't remember. Um, but it basically just charted the, it was, it was talking about the 1500% rise, uh, in trans, uh, youth that are showing up to these gender clinics claiming that they have gender dysphoria. Um, so what my tweet did, all it was, I just, I, I shared a quote from the article and then all I added at the end was the following. I just said, Two words, colon, social contagion. That's all my tweet said. <laughs> That's mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. But it somehow just caught on. It became a social contagion in almost of itself. Uh, it really <laughs> took off because Ann Coulter ended up retweeting it. And so oh, she's got like okay. followers, two million followers. And so that took off. Um, you made it big, man. You made it big. <laughs> <laughs> it follows me now, which is bizarre. Yeah. But, uh, Basically, what, what that tweet was saying is that, so there's many hypotheses, I suppose you would say, for for this dramatic rise that we're seeing in gender dysphoric youth showing up to, to clinics. Like, okay. if you were to ask trans activists, the only explanation they want is the fact that, like, oh, the social norms are being relaxed and that people now feel more comfortable to come forward with them being trans. And so that's why we're seeing more people that are coming forward, uh-huh. not because... Uh, more people are actually trans, but just because the social pressures to keep them from coming out have been relaxed. Okay, that's what they say, and that's I think there's probably some truth to that. Yeah. Um, but there's also some evidence in Lisa Lippman's paper uh, on rapid onset gender dysphoria, where she had sort of documented the fact that uh, sort of people coming out as trans sort of runs in social circles, and if you have a daughter or son that has a lot of friends that are trans, the likelihood that your 
son or daughter is going to be coming out trans, especially daughter, mm -hmm. uh, rises dramatically. And she did this through interviews with parents and the kids' social circles and things like that. Mm. And if you've looked at any of Benjamin Boyce's videos and he's talked to detransitioners and they all corroborate like, yes, this has happened to them. You know, they they got mixed up between, you know, gender norms and biological sex and they were sort of confused about what their their personalities, their gender non-conforming personalities or, or, or um, preferences and mannerisms said about their biological sex. And so they were, they kind of transitioned because of their confusion and then they ended up regretting it. Mm. Um, another, that's called the social contagion hypothesis. And all the social contagion hypothesis is just saying that basically there's a social component to the rise of certain behaviors. And mm. you've, you can see this in the history with things like peanut allergies and things saying that people claiming that they have peanut allergies to some degree, people claiming that they have, uh, you know, celiac disease or just like intolerance towards gluten. Oh sort of yeah. Gluten-free. Real cases. But then there's, there's sort of a social component. that's kind of trendy in a way, I guess you could say, um, to the point where even, I mean, in, in Europe, I think there's been even like a, a social contagion with, with suicide at one point where oh my gosh. You, had, you had this like this sweeping, across like the across Europe just people committing suicide because it was sort of like a trendy thing to do <laughs> anyway oh and then you get to see all of yeah. your the attention at the wait no yeah. you won't because you are gone yeah, yeah. So. so that tweet was then uh retweeted by someone named Kevin Bird um who is a graduate student I think at the University of Michigan mm -hmm. or uh mm -hmm. Michigan State I think they they do like plant genetics I think Okay. Um, and basically, I can't remember the exact wording of their tweet. It's in the tweet, I did, but basically they just said something like, um, this is vile transphobia, or this is like a really transphobic thing. And then they went on to say, you know, Colin is currently on the job market. Um, pay attention, you know, everyone who's, you know, hiring. Uh, this isn't the way we diversify evolution, ecology, biodiversity, that's what my, or behavior, that's what my field is. Mm. So basically he, and he included like the, the at for the diversify evolutionary biology, uh, um, the Twitter page, right. basically call, trying to call attention to my greater scientific community and my field specifically to, you know, think twice about hiring me, um, you know, coming after my, my ability to get a job in, in my field that I've been, you know, training to mm -hmm. become last decade, which is, you know, uh, I think pretty, pretty appalling behavior to do. You can disagree with me um, about whether or not social contagion is a thing, but what they really did was they they sort of made up this. So it's not a made up narrative, but it's, it doesn't really apply. So back in the day when homosexuality was being more was more maligned, mm -hmm. um, people would say that you know homosexuality is a social contagion. This was like a right wing tactic used to. Um, to scare people about, you know, don't let your children near gay people. Right. Um, and it's it's true that that's that is some some of the words that were used, but just because it was used in a context that we can now look upon as like, you know, that's that's not true. Like no one's convinced to be gay. Um, you know, it's and and even if people could be convinced to be gay, like the the worst thing that could happen would be that like, oh, you experimented and you just, you kissed someone of the opposite sex and you regretted it later, like no yeah. harm done, whatever. Right. But my argument was that for um, for this gender dysphoria type situation, you know, if, if social contagion is playing a major role that's contributing to this, you know, 1500% or even sometimes 5,000 or more percent rise in other locations, if that's, if, if social factors are contributing, so if these people aren't 
really trans, but they're they're thinking they are because of social factors. Well, this isn't just a totally benign thing. Like, being trans itself is not an issue. Like, there's no issue with trans people. But the pathway that someone is normally put on when they come out and go to a gender clinic and say that they're trans is commonly affirmation therapy. So you're mm -hmm. you're really affirmed in the gender that you are, which leads usually to taking puberty blocking or suppressing hormones. Uh, once you're on those, those lead to cross-sex hormones, invasive surgeries, you know, double mastectomies, bottom surgeries. Sometimes, if you're a, if you're a male. And these are just irreversible, and these these almost always lead to permanent infertility and sterility for the right. rest of your life. And so, it's not such a benign pathway as it would be if you know, if let's say that if you could, if being gay was a social contagion. Well, there's nothing that really comes from that. There's no harm, no harm done. Right for experimenting. But I think we should all maybe take pause a little bit when we're seeing this dramatic rise, especially since you know kids who are 16 years old, sometimes even younger, are having double mastectomies and they're getting put on this pathway to irreversible bodily changes that we're, what we're seeing now is um, some females who are now regretting these and we're seeing detransitioners come out. Um, and so I'm just saying pause, you need to pump the brakes a little bit because we see this 1,500% rise and that just begs for an explanation. Now, I think it is possible that it is lessening of social... Uh, factors, you know, uh, less bigotry towards trans and people. Stigma, I, that, yeah. that plays some role, mm -hmm. but there plays all the role, especially when we have a lot of this other evidence that suggests that there is some aspect of social contagion going on. And I just think it's really dangerous to say someone like me is a bigot for even just like bringing up the fact that that might be playing some role. Is it the whole role? Probably not. There's probably many factors that are contributing to this, but in limiting it. So only one factor, you're just you're basically condemning these people just to, to this, this fast track to, towards their, you know, uh, invasive surgeries and all, all of the hormones and all that. So that's what I was basically people tried to cancel me for was the fact that I said the word social contagion with respect to gender dysphoria. Then they immediately made the connection to this was used in the context of homosexuals and that right, was really right, bad. Right. And okay. now I'm, you know, I'm a terrible person now because I'm using this word, even though if you do a Google search and you see thousands of studies on social contagion theory, and it's, it's, it's not, not bigoted at all. Well, it, I, I mentioned this to you um, when you when we first messaged back and forth, how it reminded me a little bit of the um, when Jordan Peterson um, uttered the phrase forced monogamy and people yeah. freaked out of the idea of like forcing women to marry men i guess is what they assumed but it's it's a literal anthropological phrase mm -hmm. about like yeah. like societally enforced monogamy like socially we enforce monogamy through like having affairs not being celebrated <laughs> You know, yes, like yes. that's uh, that's from what I understand about that. So it reminds me a little bit of that. Now the guy, what was the the person's name who tweeted out um, going after your job? What was his name? Yeah, his name is Kevin Bird. Kevin Bird. Okay, so when Kevin Bird tweeted out all of that, um, yeah. I guess negative stuff out about you regarding your phrasing, did he know what social contagion was in a scientific form? Like, do you, was he ignorant or was he just 
being you know, willfully ignorant. Like with with him and a lot of people that are in his circle, he has to know it's a real area of research because anyone can Google it and, and search for it. But he's still going to hold me to the bigoted definition because he can, and he's not going to let me even even after I explain to myself like that's not what I meant. You know, it's it's still terrible that I said it, even though like it's it's a common phrase used in research. So with him and other people, they play this game where they take something that has you know could have two different meanings, and they, they, the benign meaning is readily available for anyone to see. Uh, if they just, if they want to, if, as long as they're not taking, purposely take the least charitable interpretation of what you're saying. Mm -hmm. If they just try to like look at the context, like, oh, is, is Colin a bigot? Has he said any bigoted things? Like, well, if you know me, you know that I'm not just like a person who hates trans people. I'm always attacking ideas and things like that. And so he just takes the least charitable interpretation of my tweet. And even any any attempt I have to clarify. The fact that like this is not the way I meant it. I meant it in this other purely benign way. That's just a scientific, you know, hypothesis. Right. Never good enough. And so it's just, yeah. So I think there's there's a lot more of just like power grab trying to take me down type dynamics going on than a real attempt to understand and connect in any any level. Right. Okay. So if you, in any other category of scientific research. Um, I guess for scientific research searches sake, um, would you, if you saw such a change of the plus 1500 or whatever percentage of uh, like an increase in um, the rapid onset gender, gender dysphoria or people coming on to the, or people coming to the clinics, the gender clinics, I guess, if you saw such a jump in other research would it be pretty normal to want to investigate that for us lay people yeah that's I mean, that's just a huge it just it's indicative that something has changed in the environment somehow i mean there's and if you look it all starts at around like 2013 is when you see like the uptick and then in the last couple of years it really spiked and so we want to ask ourselves, you know, like what happened around that time that's like, that that has made it so such a drastic uptick in the amount of individuals that are claiming to be trans, right? And that, you know, it could be lessening social factors. I would expect maybe you know a less dramatic spike. And also, an important to note is if if this is if it's really laxed social uh, restrictions on people coming out. We would also expect to see a concomitant rise in, you know, people who are over 30 also coming out as trans. We oh, would expect okay. To, we would probably expect to see a spike in all age ranges now that it is more socially okay to come out as trans. Did we see that with, say, homosexual individuals? Did we see all through all age categories? Um, that's a good question. I, I, so I think the no, normalization of being gay is sort of like, I think it was more gradual. I, I can't really yeah. comment too much about okay. how, how it took place. Um, that would be interesting, though. Yeah, okay. yeah. But, but, we, but for at least for gender dysphoria, we just see this dramatic rise in people who are like under 20, like this this 12 to 19 range, which is just like, you know, this, this very small range of individuals. These are the only ones 
that have this like insane spike in mm. the number of individuals that are all of a sudden just becoming trans and many of them without any previous history of being trans uh, or like uh, or history of gender non-conforming behavior or claiming that they're trans so if, if if you look at kids who are from a very very young age say that they feel like the opposite sex and they're very adamant about it those people are much less likely to desist you know uh, through puberty and everything like that, like that they're they're much more likely to be trans the rest of their lives if it starts very young mm. it's consistent and consistent across across time but that's not the demographic we're seeing now. we're seeing this sort of rapid onset or uh, adolescent onset gender dysphoria where where kids mostly females with no previous history whatsoever of gender non-conforming behavior or maybe they might be like tomboyish but no no claims that they feel like they were born in the wrong body or that they're the opposite sex mm. or all of a sudden just announcing sometimes just out of the blue to their parents that you know i feel like you know, a boy if they're a female or the opposite um is just completely out of nowhere uh and it usually has to do with the, you know, the social groups that they've been a part of uh going on to certain websites and looking at the um sort of getting involved in the communities there that are sort of fast-tracking people to this sort of ideology. Um, I think a lot of part of the of the spike we're seeing is that the ideology surrounding gender dysphoria and, and being transgender um, has just expanded so much of what trans is. So trans never used to be an ideology. It was purely just a, a condition that people would have that they just have this deep internal feeling that they have mm. been born in a body that they feel like they're the opposite sex. And, you know, it gives them much discomfort and anxiety mm. to have the body that they have they just don't feel like they they have the body that they should have been born with mm. but sort of becoming an ideology in a sense uh where it's saying that like i just don't identify with the in gender i was assigned at birth and now we have these non-binary identities that's you know when you boil these things down they're just they, they really do boil down to people just not agreeing with these sort of regressive sex related stereotypes you know these right. of of masculinity and femininity and to me that's just that's not what being trans is like if that's being trans then i'm trans because i don't identify with total masculine stereotypes like i'm not an aggressive person i don't want to go out there and shoot animals and go to monster truck rallies or fights or like I, that's, that's the yeah. opposite of what i am like i don't want to do that um so yeah i mean most people probably don't identify with the most gross stereotypes stereotype of their sex right and so when it's we're all non-binary in this way but um what these new trans identities do they just sort of create this false binary that never existed in the first place that like we've always had these diverse personalities but now this is sort of being uh being reinterpreted as being trans and it's just that's why we're seeing this huge spike too because what trans is is just it's, the walls have been blown out it's just anybody can be trans if right uh, these new ideologies and you can be trans you're yeah i can see what you mean because you can be trans with literally no effort just by word or exactly. in writing or it as far as you can possibly go with gender reassignment surgery and or sex reassignment surgery or, or whatever and so yeah I, I see what you mean how it's it can it, it, there's no definition for being trans you say you are and that's yeah. as easy as it is. Do you think that, because it feels like gender 
it could have I, I okay gender could have or should have been enough to conquer for maybe changing the way we see it um like re-establishing re, re gender roles or re-establishing what's okay about not following gender, traditional gender roles. It seems like those things could have been um, enough, um, but then they came for biological sex, Yeah, <laughs> is uh, what it seems like. <laughs> so yeah. why do you think gender wasn't enough? Because remember, I remember when gender was same as sex, What's the gender yeah. of the baby? Oh, it's you know whatever versus saying sex, and now it's like oh well now they now it seems like like gender is completely separate, and I I kind of am okay with that from how I have heard of, I think we talked about this the last time I chatted with you about gender being a spectrum or bimodal, I don't know if spectrum's yeah. the right word, but it 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 can it has it's sort of the roles in that people embody of their sex. Yeah, I think me along with a lot of other, I, I consider myself, I don't consider myself like a gender critical person, even though I have many views that are, I guess, overlapping with them. Mm. But a lot of the, like the gender critical feminist stance on gender, which they, they view as more of a sort of the societal norms and expectations that society puts on individuals based on their perceived sex. So we mm -hmm. might look at someone who we we assess as to be a female and we're going to say oh they must be very you know a submissive person they're very nurturing like those kind of things that's kind of what gender right. is in that, in that idea just the, the social roles um their idea of being gender critical like they don't they don't think gender is a good thing they think that we need to let people like people shouldn't be socially uh enforced or like you know whipped into conforming to these certain stereotypes that we all have, these ideals of these gender roles, because they're sort of limiting, because you can have, you know, a, a female who wants to do stereotypically masculine things mm -hmm. that you know, most, most women don't do, and then they might, society might say, you know, this isn't, you know, very proper for a woman to do, and, you know, it's not something, and then they'll, that'll influence them in certain ways. When I grew up, in grade school, I mean, the the social gender policing was was pretty big. If, if I don't know how I don't know how unique my situation was, but I think it's probably pretty typical of a lot of young adolescent boys that if if you do anything that is not one hundred percent manly, you know, you are just called like a sissy. Everything they're just you know well, you're not a real man. Like what are you a girl? Like all that type of stuff. Like and that's yeah. sort of that's the gender in action. That's that's right. the social policing that's enforcing, you know, uh, coming down on effeminate uh, boys, telling them that they shouldn't be that way. And it's also something that would come down on, like, you know, a, a more tomboyish girl that might make them feel sort of alienated. Right. Um, the idea is that we want to relax these social pressures and the societal norms and expectations. Not say that, like, well, if you don't fit these, then you're maybe, you know, if you're a tomboy... Now what people are saying is that you must oh, be male. Maybe you're actually a boy, or if you're like you're very an effeminate male, then like oh maybe since you like to play with dolls and things, maybe you're actually a little girl. Mm. And to me, that couldn't be more regressive, and just like this, reverting back to these conservative notions of what it means to be, you know, not even just like conservative, but like, you know, deeply regressive old conservative ways of like women only belong in the kitchen type of thing. Mm. 
if you don't conform to these certain norms of your sex, then maybe you're actually the opposite sex trapped in the body. Right. So it's, and it's just, it couldn't be such a, a more toxic thing to say. And it's, I just think that that's just an appalling way to look at things. And I try to fight out against that because it's that too that is also leading people to you know deny the reality of biological sex because they interchange gender and sex all the time. And Right. Why do they want... Why is why are the trans activists so so aggressive about conquering sex for their own definition purposes? Why is that so important? In the name of inclusivity? Is that it? I think just so they can't be questioned in any context they're, you know, they're fully a woman in every context that that would matter as far as society is concerned. They they don't want to be limited. They don't want to go to a you know a third you know gender neutral bathroom because you know that to them is perhaps making their dysphoria worse because you know we're saying that you're not really a woman or something. And so they they hinge on the fact that intersex people exist, and they use right, that as right. sort of a bridge between the sexes in order to say that well sex is more of a spectrum, and what that. What they're trying to do is saying that, like, well, we're all intersex to some degree. That's basically what that boils down to. And therefore, if we're all intersex to some degree, if we're all just a little bit, you know, mixtures of male and female, then there's there's no lines to be drawn anywhere. And that, hell, anyone should just therefore be able to say what sex they are just by, just by identifying as it. Because, you know, there's no clear lines anywhere. Who's, who's to say otherwise? So that's sort of where their narrative kind of goes down. Uh, and then, you know, you bring up the fact that, like, well, trans people aren't intersex. They're usually, unless unless they are, mm. uh, the vast majority of trans people are un- unambiguously male or female. They're, they're using this intersex community, or not community, but the, the fact that intersex people exist in order to somehow shoehorn their way into saying that sex isn't real and that they can identify whatever. Mm. Yes. I mean, it is pretty, it's pretty nuts. I, I rack my brain over it. Yeah, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm asking you when you're like, I just come against them. I don't know why they do. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm trying to learn more about, you know, the reasons why. And I think a lot of it's because they, a lot of, they have genuinely have dysphoria. But, um, yeah, I think I just, there needs at some point, especially when you start changing laws to reflect this, this reality. Like, I'm I'm more than happy to to socially accept people as the sex that they claim that they uh-huh, are. Uh-huh. But, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's a social, um, social fiction, I guess, but like, I'm willing to play along because dysphoria is a real thing. And I don't yeah. want, I care about somebody and I don't want to, I don't want them to be uncomfortable around me. And if I see them, they're, you know, putting in the effort and they're, they're wearing, you know, they're male and they're wearing, you know, female clothes and they're trying to do their best to portray themselves. Like I'm, I'm not going to raid on their parade and call them a dude or something. Yeah. Like that's, that's just not who I am. And I, I have no problem with trans people and using their pronouns and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to, if we're going to go ahead and then say into, in, in describe that into laws and saying that, Oh no, you literally are the sex you claim you are. And then you get all of the rights and privileges associated with that sex, including playing in their sports and having access, going into their prisons and right. all of this. It's, at that point, like, it just needs to be an adult in the room that just says, we need to wait here because, you know, this is, you know, we can socially accept these people, but, like, we cannot 
untether ourselves to the reality of the situation. Like there's, right. there's still the sex that they were born as. There can be maybe some exceptions and we can change something about illegal sex and we can have arguments about what legal sex should reflect and, you know, all those types of things. But, you know, we can't just go ahead and, and open it up to something as, as, as arbitrary as self-identification. That's just, that's just a disaster waiting to happen for, for women especially just because they have they fought so hard for their sex-segregated spaces in order to avoid having to be in contact with, with males in many different contexts. And, right. Yeah, it's just, you, you, all those laws have become completely unenforceable if you just allow anyone just by pure self-identification, even if they don't change anything, like about right. how they're, you know, I have a beard. I could just claim that I'm a woman either tomorrow and I could, you know, if I could join a, a women's basketball team or something. Right. And I'm pretty, I'd probably do pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But, but yeah. And then you'd be like, yeah, I'm just going to go in the locker room. Come on guys. I mean, gals, <laughs> exactly. but, but yeah. Well, so, so the, the question I have is like on the biology side, um, why do we want to know and why do we care to know what sex or gender someone is? Both. We care about both. But why do we, I, I want to know some, you know, if you see someone who's an, who's sexually amb ambiguous, I want to know what they are. And and I've thought of this. I've noticed this in my own thoughts of like, it doesn't matter what they are in the end. I just want to know. Yeah. I mean, I, don't, I guess I don't know the exact answer to that, but I mean, I can see psychologically speaking, um, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, there are many traits associated with being male or female that just help us sort individuals in our daily life. You want to know who... Who do you have to be more afraid of? Who's going to like you know approach you more aggressively for you know sexual contexts or who's who do you have to watch out for more? So I mean one of the first things I think you identify with somebody is is their biological sex. Your brain just does this thing automatically, and that just it's a it's a useful sort of heuristic to just navigate your world. I mean it's it's important to know who are the individuals I could potentially hit on and meet with, and who do I have to be weary of. You know, it's, is this a familiar male face or is this a foreign male face that I've never seen before and I need to worry? Um, because, yeah, there's differences in behaviors and personalities between the sexes that knowing someone's sex does say maybe not a lot about, like, that individual, but, like, you can, you can say that on average this person is going to behave a certain way that I might be able to predict, you know, not 100% of the time, but pretty good what they're going to do, especially... Um, in traits like aggression and things like that, which are really, really useful to know. Right. Uh, at a glance. <laughs> so. At a glance, literally, yeah. Because yeah. I've noticed that, um, and I, yeah, I, I don't know why other than I just want to know. What are you? Like, I yep. just want to know. You ever, you ever seen the movie It's Pat before, that old movie? No, what is it? Julia Sweeney. It was just about this character that was just this androgynous character and the whole movie was about the fact that nobody knew what sex they were and everyone was trying to find out but no one wants to oh, add, really? it's, actually, it, it's, it's because nobody wants to like directly ask them so they're all trying to like find out through indirect means and it's, yeah. it's pretty it's, it's a funny movie you should watch it I, sh I will like you know that totally sounds like the exact conundrum that i am thinking of we just yeah. want to know like we're just we just like to put i think that that's 
an important thing to remember is that humans like putting things in boxes because it's the way in which we navigate the world. Definitely. And, it's and sex not, is pretty, and in, in biological sex is a box that is, you know, it's, it's, it's really important, especially evolutionary speaking, because this is how reproduction is based on. You need to know who, who you can potentially mate with or not, or who you're going to be, you know, who, who you need to watch out for, who's potentially dangerous. So Right. And for, can, for females, who to explain. make an alliance with and who to backstab. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> I mean, no, I've been thinking about, like, uh, the difference between, like, the male hierarchy and female hierarchies and yeah. how um, they're just so different. Yeah. They're, anyways, they're just like about the dynamics that go on. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. I will. I interviewed um a lady named Melissa Marissa Orr uh my last interview and I got a lot of um I haven't gotten this much but a lot of dudes commenting like you want us to change work just for you ladies. I'm like no, we just are exploring some differences. Okay, we're just looking at some, anyways. But but that's the thing. The the differences, like there are differences. Actually, that's the that's the part that really confuses me. Is some activists are saying there's no difference. It's all socially constructed, and then on the other end, oh, there's huge differences because, um, like I guess it's like the the radical feminists, the trans exclusionary radical feminist types. Like I know that that's derogatory to say are saying like there is a difference although they believe in social construction of gender as well i believe so that's extra confusing and then on the other side they're like no no it's all constructed so we can all choose anything it's very yeah. confusing where the problem lies yeah well we're so a lot of the gender critical feminists are, are now that the fact that a lot of males are sort of deciding they want to i just identify their way into female spaces are are really coming around now to the idea that sex differences are real because there was they kind of rode this narrative before where you know everything was socially constructed and mm -hmm. um, you know personality wise and everything like that um you know differences in aggression those are just by how boys were raised differently and things like that but mm -hmm. uh now that the fact that you're getting a lot of people saying like you're right there are no differences and like i'm one of you and you know they're identifying their way into these, you know, into the female category. Uh, you're getting a lot of sort of these gender critical feminists that are now sort of being more open to the fact that maybe some of these, what we called social constructs of gender, are actually some. There are some innate differences, and I think ultimately it's going to come down to it's going to be a mixture of both. It's going to be yes, there are some biologically based innate behavioral differences average differences, mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. utter differences uh, between males and females. And it's also true that we have, you know, social policing of gender norms as well on top of that, that mm. could maybe people's behavior change as well. Mm. Two things could be true at once. And I think that's almost certainly the case in this situation. Right. Um, yeah. The key is to un a disentangle, you know, how much of it is that social policing of gender norms and how much is it uh, of these innate differences. And, right. Uh, that's, that's what it's going to come down to. Um, some, sometimes, like, all the things are true at once. And so yeah. that's why these things kind of get a bit messy. So coming back to the um, the situation with you, are you concerned about 
your career career as a result of this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I so, mean, we can talk a little bit about what happened to our friend Bo Weingard. Yeah, and not, not just with him too, but yeah, that's that's definitely a canary in the coal mine type situation. Because you know, there Bo were other. Lost, is it he lost tenure, or he was lost his tenure track position? Yeah, so they're not going to... He had a tenure-track position, and they're just not going to renew his contract. So right. as soon as... His, he might even be done now, I'm not sure, but his, as soon as his teaching... Because he still, he still was on schedule to finish up the semester or whatever, and so they just said they were not going to renew that, and so he's basically uh, basically screwed. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's, it's such a shame, too, because academia is just not like so many other jobs. You know, you, you have to go to school for four years to get your bachelor's and then your PhD for another five, six or more years sometimes. And then yeah. do a postdoc for a few years just to get a chance to get a tenure track position and just for them, for them to fire him over ideological differences and certainly not scientific ones because he's, he went the right routes of publishing in the scientific journals. They just didn't like the heat they were getting mm -hmm. uh, and to basically kick Bo out on the, on the curb like that it's it's can be years before you're gonna be able to get another position if you can get one at all because now that he's been fired and has this you know this stigma surrounding him now of being the person that was fired you google him now and that's all you're gonna see yeah so they really just i mean they just destroyed the guy's career and it's just such a shame and i, I do worry i think i think the chances i'll get a position in academia i used to be more optimistic i think it's pretty low oh. right now um I, I spoke, I won't give their names, but someone told me they were at a small liberal arts college and they basically reached out to me and said that, you know, that this was the chair of their biology department. And he said that he'd be very interested in, in hiring me as a, as a professor there and that he thinks he could get the faculty uh, involved in, behind that choice because he liked my new evolution deniers piece, he uses it in a class of his and he just really liked the stuff I was doing. Um, but then he said that it would almost certainly be impossible to hire me, though, because the HR would almost certainly block the hiring. Really? Because, because they would Google me and they would see my social media presence and they would just, they would want to avoid any sort of potential lawsuit of any, you know, student claiming that they feel unsafe or something like that. Um, and I've heard that from a few different different people. That, that was the most stark one, where it was the, literally the chair of a biology department saying that, they would like to hire me that they mm -hmm. just don't feel that would ever be possible. Um, yeah. And there's also other things with my, my old advisor. He's sort of being investigated for things right now. And people are trying to use his, the fact that I've published papers with him, they're using that to sort of say like, Oh, I must be bad too. Because Just by I, association. Yeah. By association. And so it's, yeah, there's, there's a lot working against me right now. So I'm, I'm sort of, looking for uh, an exit <laughs> at the moment um mm. i was probably going to make the exit sooner and i i still might be doing it but uh you know we're in that global recession pandemic right now so it's i know everything's on hold not a good time to be jobless so we'll see but i have other ideas i'd like to do um i'm oh, this is sort of irrelevant to the podcast but i guess I, i'm going to be doing like an online fitness and like nutrition type coaching thing as well as well, I asked you what you're up to, so like it's it's relevant. <laughs> yeah, I plan like I'm I'm planning on writing a book as well, uh, in the meantime, and um, yeah, more scientific science journalism type things, and hmm. I'll probably try to get a 
things published in like in journals that are more like opinion pieces before I uh, bow out of academia. But I'll still be I'll still be around doing other stuff. I'd also like to do some sort of you know YouTube type interviews, kind of like what we're doing right now. But right. So we'll see. Well, the know. thing is, it it is important to have professors with um, like diversity of thought. That is, I mean, of course, within reason. Yeah. Um, but because I did an interview with Jeffrey Sachs a couple back, and he was saying that is where he does think there's bias, and it's the hardest to prove, um, is the hiring of professors on the conservative end. And I'm not saying you're even on the conservative end. That's the thing. I don't myself either yeah. you're not at all i know like i know you're like on the left but you're just not on the activist left yeah but but it's important to have um and he was listing people um he gave examples of you know people in a different space just from their own bias seeing different angles of data and finding the bottom of oh you guys actually read this wrong and of course you know they tested it and stuff but um, just seeing different angles of like the same concept coming from a different angle, and that's valuable. And that's not yeah. going to happen if universities are only worried about PR. It seems like. Yeah, I blame social media completely for all of this because yeah. think this, about this, how this didn't happen before social media, right? This type of yeah. Yeah. strong well, bias. If you think about how how did you hire a professor before social media? Like, well. They would apply to a position. You, they have their application that has all their, you know, publications and everything like that. There is these norms of being interviewed where you know you can't ask certain personal questions. So you're not gonna, mm -hmm. you can't ask them like what political party are you part of and mm -hmm. you know reviews on abortion. Like you're not gonna ask those things during a job interview for good reason because mm -hmm. we realize these types of questions have no relevance whatsoever to their ability to be a psychologist or a biologist or a economist or whatever the position might be, you know, professor in these fields. And now it's interesting because we still have those norms during the interviews. So we, mm. we go to an interview and no one's going to ask what your political leanings are. You know, if you're pro-choice or if you're about to have children, like these are things they can't ask you during an interview. But that's information that they can then just obtain through a quick Google search, you know, behind your back, essentially. And so mm. I, I had a I tweeted out before that, like, if you think it's unethical to ask these questions during an interview to gain this information about them, like, it's, it should also be unethical for you to then snoop behind their back and obtain this information through any other route. Mm. So now having this ability to basically say, oh, these people are of this political persuasion, and it could even be unconsciously, they could just be rating them down and how they think they'd be a good colleague because they saw a picture of one individual and he was with someone, they had a MAGA hat. Maybe he didn't even wear one himself, but he was around someone or something. And it's just going to, you're going to be less likely to hire someone because people like hiring, being around people that are more like them. Mm, In the mm -hmm. past, you wouldn't know a lot about a person before you hired them. You just knew that they were a good scientist or economist or whatever. People get some cues here, here and there. But if they showed up to work once you hired them, and they turned out that they were vastly different political uh, ideology than you, then this is like, well, they are, you already hired them. They're there. Mm. You get that diversity. But now we just have the ability to just really just self-select and just perfectly curate 
who's going into the departments, and you betcha it's going to be people that are just towing that line of the diversity, equity, inclusion type things that is just of a very particular far left persuasion. And once you get that point, once you like keep getting these individuals and it gets more and more skewed, it just makes it even more likely that they're going to pick someone who's even more dramatically, you know, radical on the political spectrum. And so I just, I, I just think that social media has made it so if you're going to, it's going to turn academia into these ideological monocultures. Uh, and I don't know any way to get rid of that except for changing the way we hire to just literally being just like an anonymous application or something. Just right, no names. Maybe, it's like no names. Here's where I went to school. Here's my degree. Maybe even not even names of papers, so they can't look up your paper, but just saying just the journal title, so they can know if the journal is good. You know, I published this. You know, five papers in these top journals in the last year. You know, just those things, and just make the assessment based on the credentials of the person applying, and have no identifying information where they can, you know, find out who this is. Are they going to be a good colleague? Well, what's a good colleague? To me, a good colleague, at least in the academia, is someone who's going to be scientifically robust. They're going to be able to cover for my blind blind spots in my research. Hmm. But now, what's a good colleague is you know people who aren't going to rock the boat politically, and it's going to be very much like you. Um, and I just I think it's I don't think they're consciously doing it. I think they think that they're just selecting people that they like and that unconscious process is just creating this ideological monoculture where they're just not going to be able to see their blind spots. And I, I think it's just terrible. I think it's, I think it's going to destroy the universities. Well, it's hyperbolic as that. I think well, really I mean, there's always a reaction to these actions, right? So I am nervous that, that super, super conservative colleges are going to start popping up where all of the concern, all the people who have been run out of town are like, okay, well, we'll just go here. But then, you know, extremes can gather there as well on the, on the other side. And then you'll get right wing and then far right wing. I don't know. Like, does that, does that sound like something that could maybe happen? I just thought of it now. So maybe it's just not really. Yeah, I mean, totally. There's, yeah, I can see, I can see, I think there's going to be more private universities probably that are going to have their own hiring process. But I, I do think you do run the risk of having... Like a segregation, this, politically almost. Yeah. You, you don't want to... Ideally, you'd have a diversity of people in the same department. And when I say diversity, I, I don't, I'm not talking about like the diversity, equity, inclusion and stuff you normally see, but you know, the ideological diversity. And um, ideally, that would be in the same department <laughs> because you don't want just departments of, you know, full colleges that are only seeing things in one way. Yeah. Um, and some fields, you know, the social sciences, they, they do lean liberal just because that's, that's the political leanings of the people graduating. For some reason, it just attracts more liberals. Mm -hmm. And that's fine as long as there isn't any active, uh, active or, you know, maybe not active as in terms of being consciously aware of it, but some process that's somehow selecting against uh, conservatives in these in these fields, you know, as long as it's okay to have a skew, as long as there's nothing that's keeping individuals out uh, who are not of that political right, form, like know. exclusions and whatnot. Yeah, so, so I'm not for like I don't think there should be any sort of like affirmative action for conservatives. I right. just think that to, we just need to like level the playing field to make it so that there aren't any barriers to conservatives. Right. Um, 
yeah, I don't think, you know, I don't want to be like, you have to interview one conservative, you know. Right, no, and that seems, this, it Um, is, it gets kind of almost like, like you don't want to enforce these rules on universities where they're, it's like, okay, so you're not allowed to let your HR run who you hire like from the like you don't want the government coming down and telling universities what to do like that that scares me too but you also want a fair shot for all you know different skews of people on different parts of the spectrum too so i think everyone listening is going to think that i'm outing myself as conservative by like saying all this stuff but like yeah i'm no i know you're not yeah you're you're left you're on the left on the left at least i used to certain questioning myself now but you know like atheist for universal health care against the death penalty I mean, you, you can almost go down the line of like leftist talking points and i agree with almost all of them yeah except for like the only things i think people will say i'm a conservative on is like well i don't hate capitalism and uh <laughs> I'm, like, don't hate I'm, okay. I'm okay with the second you know gun having a gun ownership you know within reason and uh that's i mean that's that's maybe about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, hey, I have a question actually. Um, also, and with with your your type, your scientific types of individuals on Twitter lately, I've seen a lot of sort of. I am more concerned with the you know name particular activist group here, you know, more than the creationists or with the, you know, Christian right or I don't know whatever. Like like there's certain. Where you were concerned with religion in the past, um, yeah. not just you, but I've seen a lot of people like list, like a sort of do a comparison. Why is there that, why is there that specific comparison with religion, particularly I suppose like almost old Bible Belt style Christianity versus the, the latest activism? Like why do we have that comparison? At least from my perspective, it has to do with where are the attacks to science and specifically evolutionary biology coming from. Okay. And, you know, in about 10 years ago, those 10, 15 years ago, or even more, those attacks were coming from the right. Right. For me, they were coming from young earth creationists and intelligent design proponents um, trying to, you know, get evolution not taught in schools or at least trying to teach intelligent design alongside evolution in schools um, or getting pamphlets put in textbooks saying that, you know, evolution is only a theory and like there's other, you know, it needs to be just one of many theories or something like that. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was what was dealing with, I was dealing with before because mm. I was very active, sort of like the new atheist movement or whatever, mm-hmm. arguing against the creationists and the intelligent design people. That was, I was big on that. That was what I was doing. Mm. That's a big reason of why I'm an evolutionary biologist today because I was in these arguments so much with them. I, ended up reading so much about evolutionary biology. And then when I, when it came to the point where I had to figure out what I wanted to do for school, it's just like, well, this is the most interesting subject to me. And I already know a lot. decent amount of it. It's pretty fascinating. And so I just sort of doubled down <laughs> on the evolutionary biology. Yeah. Now, but now the attack, I mean, sort of, I sort of went over this in my evolution deniers piece, but like the, the creationist intelligence design people, they're still there, but they're not really active anymore. They lost in, the, uh, the Kitzmiller-Dover trial. They lost in court. They're really not 
uh, that socially relevant anymore, I guess. They're not looking to change any laws or anything like that um, anymore for education? I'm sure, they, I'm sure they would like to. They just sort of don't have the, the power. They're just not as as relevant as they used to be. They're just, yeah, they're just, they've just been easier to ignore, I suppose, because okay. they haven't been very, uh, Active. very powerful. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, but now the problem is, is sort of different because it's coming from the left and it's, it's an even worse problem because in academia, you know, I could be, I would have no problem when I did when I was in, in grad school and so I would argue against the creationists and stuff. And I had no problem arguing against these people on social media because all the other evolutionary biologists were on my side, all the other people in academia, you know, academia was on my side mm. in, in that battle. Okay. But now the, now the attacks to evolution are coming from within the academy from people in, you know, the, the gender studies departments and even in my own field. I mean, there is most of the people in my field, they completely disagree with me on just about everything. Really? I've been arguing with them constantly on the reality of biological sex with like evolutionary biologists and ecologists. And it's just blowing my mind that people are, are denying this and sex differences and all this stuff. Mm. And so it's, it's more difficult because it's coming from within the university. And it's also really hard to root it out because they're, they're just, they're in there. And because of social media, it's even more it's left skewed to this type of ideology now. So it's, it's going to be harder to remove because well, creationism intelligent mind was was never inside the university. Right. It was never it was never a tumor that had to be removed. It was on the outside. We just had to, you know, successfully fend it off. Right. And that was really easy because they had they just had no way to get in. And so yeah, so that's that's why I've shifted my focus because I can ignore the creationists and intelligent design people now because they're just out there doing whatever and they're not that relevant. Yeah, yeah. But the the attacks, you know, it's it's almost like I feel it's almost like uh, oh, what's that movie, um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where like I'm just <laughs> looking around, and everyone looks like me, like we're all biologists. I'm like, which, but I'm like, which ones? Which ones of you are the people who like don't think biological sex is a real thing? And oh, okay, you know, no one says anything until it comes down to it, and then they'll all just like you realize that they all have the little pronouns in their bio, and you can that's, that's how you can identify them by <laughs> okay. seeing which ones those people are. And yeah, it just, it blows my mind and I don't know how, I don't know how to get them out well, <laughs> or change their mind. Well, cause it seems like within theory itself, there's the like feminist theory and then trans theory and they don't seem compatible within the, like within that gender critical theory or just yeah. gen or just feminist theory. Like it seems like they, they don't well, really mesh. Well, there, there's like two branches of feminism now. I, I kind of classify them as the, the gender feminists, where they center, like, what does it mean to be a woman? Mm. And they're, what they say is a uh, woman as a gender identity. Mm. And so that includes males and anybody who can say, I identify as a woman. Like, right. that includes, that's what that feminism is. Whereas a gender critical feminist, they're more like, their feminism is centered around females because they in my opinion correctly identify that their historical oppression and continued to this day in, in relevant ways is not based on what is in their mind it's based on their sex bodies mm. as being females and that that's clearly the case <laughs> and i don't know how anyone could think that that's not the case i mean if you have a sexist walking by and there's two females but one of them identifies as a man like 
a sexist isn't going to care. They're going to treat you both the same. Right. They're not going to ask which one of you identifies as the woman. And they're like, oh, okay, now I know which one to be a sexist to. Yeah, like, yeah. How, and a lot of that feminist how... theory is like, depending <laughs> how society treats you, seeing you as a yeah. woman. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah. And that's you, and they, you can't see a brain. Your brain state, it's a cryptic thing until you ask somebody. And so that's just not how people, that's, that's not how society is like enforcing anything based on, you know, on gender norms. You can't gender, you can't enforce gender roles on a completely cryptic trait of a, of a mind. Well, it's, it'll be interesting to yeah. see how it ends though. You know, like where it's going to go. I mean, when, I mean, if the Olympics happens, I don't know, with regards to this whole true, yeah. virus thing. Yeah, it was, was going to be a big thing, but now it might not even happen anymore. The right. Olympics. So we'll, well see. Is it the is it the first Olympics where I didn't know if they were going to do uh, trans categories or not, or who they're going to allow? Uh, so as far as I know, that they they've were going to allow trans women to play, but it was the first Olympics with the new rules that didn't require any like, bottom surgery, and all it requires is like being had like, self professed gender for I think a year or something like that and then be on be on cross-sex hormones uh or sorry just to have your um your testosterone if you're playing a, a, in the women's category as a male to have your testosterone beneath I think it's five nanomoles per liter which is still like considerably higher than your average female yeah um yeah so that I think that was the first Olympics where they were removing all of those bars to it oh. and now that and that would have been gender, interesting to see, but now it's... Hmm? Yeah, and now trans is more of an ideology rather than just like a, a medical condition as it was before. Yeah. Uh, you're going to... Uh, I would... I mean, I'm, it's a prediction, but you're going to see a lot more trans athletes entering because the what is considered trans is now just like exploded. And it's, you know... I mean, I could be... I, mean, I, I could do it. I know. <laughs> I, I know. Well, I, it, isn't it so odd, like... That victory of a male over females, I'm like, how can that, how can that satisfy? Yeah, no, it does though. If you look at Rachel McKinnon, or sorry, uh, Veronica Ivy is now her name. Uh, she's the bicyclist okay. who's um, won gold medals and things. Right. It's the most smug person ever about it. She just constantly will go on Twitter and just like you know rub it in the women's faces. If, if they weren't all smiles when they were on the podium with her, when she's holding up her gold medal, she just calls them out as bigots right there on right. on Twitter. These people are terrible. It's like, oh, it's because they, yeah. they had their medal stolen. Well, I, I don't know when the next um, Olympics will be then. I guess it'll be... So what, what it was Japan, right? It was going to be Japan. That was the summer one. Okay, or, so whatever is the I next... I actually don't follow it too closely. I'm not. But I'm interested to see how the world will react, though, with these new categories. Yeah, yeah. it might change. I mean, if it's if it's going to be delayed, it might. You never know. The rules might change now because I know some organizations, like the World Rugby, just had a recent. Uh, what do you want to call it? A conference or a symposium or something where they they invited people from both sides. The you know the trans women are women and belong in women's sports and. The opposite people, you know, like me and whatever, who would argue the opposite. They they brought in scientists from both sides to argue each point to sort of try to try to come up with a new uh, trans inclusion or I guess potentially exclusion policy mm -hmm. uh, with for rugby because you know rugby is one of the 
that's a very violent sport where yeah. you can just see a male just like totally dominating. Yeah. <laughs> and this is not even not even just being you know, dominating, but injuring the female competitors in there. I mean, it's a complete safety issue. Yeah. And so I think that they, they held this this discussion group, um, probably also because they, they want to avoid lawsuits if this if this, this happens. And well, what did, how did it be. end up? Um, so they're going to, I don't think they've released their new revised policy yet, but they've, they're going to release all of the talks, I think, that people gave um, to be very transparent. It might even be available now, but I think I would have heard Heard about it. I don't know if you know uh, Emma Hilton um, on Twitter, the uh, fond of Beatles on Twitter. Oh, maybe she, if she I was, saw her. Yeah, she, she was the co-author for me on the Wall Street Journal article recently that we put out. Oh, okay. And she was, yeah, she was actually there. She was called oh. to be the people who was consulted about cool about the evidence of whether or not uh, trans women have any sort of biological advantage that transfers over. So she. She's one of the best people to have on that panel, and uh, you should totally interview her too. I'm just going to pull her right now. Okay, awesome. I, I will. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I'm always looking for for people for the yeah. chats for the channels. Well, I just talking about this feels like like you're like whether there's any advantage for biological males to compete. I'm just like, where are we? Are we in? Are we in like 1984? Like where are we? We're we. Of course, there is an advantage, people. Like it's, it's bizarre how we have to like go out there and just like make these facts. You know, it's it's one of those things where like no one gab needed to gather data on it because it was like so obviously true. Yeah, it would just be yeah. like it would just be like let's do a study on whether ducks like water. It's like no one's gonna like do that study because do we really need like a paper written about ducks and water to like realize that ducks like water like no <laughs> but given how pervasive this sort of denialism of biological sex and sex differences they're actually forcing people to go out there and like give data on the fact that ducks like water right that's like what that's basically what we're doing right now and so we're like okay we'll do it here but, it is <laughs> but it's like water and it's not that you're <laughs> wanting to make these people feel like inferior individuals it that's the thing is no one's trying to make anyone feel anything it's just trying to be fair for women to have a yes. chance because there's no i mean i know that i know that in like that the, that bell curve that there's the weakest the strongest woman might be able to beat the weakest man but overall women won't have a chance in sports if this continues and 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 I, I, you know, I, women should have a chance to win. That's why we have a women's category, right? I yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look at the fact that you know people, if you look at the NBA, for example, like the NBA and most, actually, I think most, if not all, of the main mega, the, the big sports, like you have like the WNBA, the women's NBA, but the NBA isn't the MNBA. It's not the men's league. Right. It's an open league. Anybody, right. anybody could be in the NBA. Like, there's really? nothing in their rules that say they can't draft a female. I didn't know like, that. Like, it's just, yeah, yeah, they can they can draft women if they want to. It's just no woman has ever been good enough to compete in the NBA because it's selecting for the elite of the elite of the elite among men, and there just aren't that, there aren't women in that elite of the elite of the elite in the population as a whole. Right. Just because right. the average differences. I mean, we're talking about the tippity 
end of the tail. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't go any further out there. There's only so many players that can be in the league. Right. And if you I mean just by just by height alone, I mean we know that NBA selects for being tall. Right. And if you're just looking at just height, I mean yeah, you get some people who are short and you can play in the NBA, but and it's just yeah, it's, it's selects hard. It's a lot of traits that females happen to have, or just they they don't tend to have. They don't tend to be as tall and as strong and as fast. Just yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you'd want to plug now that we're kind of winding down here? A, a university to hire you? <laughs> if they still want to, before I bow out, then I'll take it. Because <laughs> you're still working uh, I, now, right? Like, you all, you have a job currently. Yeah, yeah my, my contract at Penn State goes through June. So okay. um, sometime around then, maybe I'll be out doing something else completely. We'll see. Okay. Uh, but either way, my I don't think my online presence will change that much. might increase or, you know, I'll still be doing... Still be writing stuff and putting it out there. Okay. Probably, probably more stuff's gonna come out during these quarantine weeks than uh than right. I have in the last few months. So may as well be <laughs> productive. More- yeah. For sure. Okay. Well, thanks for yeah. chatting, Colin. This was good. I think we went over the the core of these <laughs> these dealings. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it.